We will reconsider what's already started to be considered this morning, Mary's song in Luke 1. It's important for us to know before we hear God's reading in a little more length than what Laura gave to us or gave to the children this morning. It's important for us to know that there has been 400 years of prophetic silence before the angel Gabriel comes to Mary. You know, silence is really hard. In fact, in many ways, silence is harder than even the presence of tension. There's nothing like, for example, getting the silent treatment from a loved one. Well, in many ways, God's people, in the midst of being confused and perplexed and even questioning His love, surely had been wondering, are we getting the silent treatment? I mean, God promised a Messiah, but that was a long time ago. And in fact, we haven't heard anything prophetically in 400 years. But then God comes through the, through the angel Gabriel to the most unlikely of people, Mary. Upon this idea of God speaking from the Old Testament into the New Testament, bridging this 400-year gap, Fleming Rutledge, who you've heard me mention before, this Episcopal priest in her book on Advent says this, the Old Testament is arranged to a point Hold her. I'm sorry. The Old Testament is arranged to point to the future inbreaking of hope that is beyond human hope, beyond human potential, beyond human striving. And that is the movement of God into the territory that is occupied by the forces of darkness. Over these forces, unaided by human efforts, it is God alone who saves. This is not a movement of earth to heaven. This is not a movement of earth to heaven, but of heaven to earth. Utterly gracious because it is utterly undeserved. And that's what God speaks to. Stand with me, if you will, as we hear this message that is utterly gracious because it is utterly undeserved, not only to Mary but also to us. Luke chapter 1, we'll read verses 26 through 38, and then we will skip to verse 46 and read through verse 55. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin, betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? It's a good question, by the way. Verse 35, and the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age was also conceived, has also conceived a son. And at this time is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. 
And then, a little while later, Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked upon the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. This is the gospel of the Lord. Pray with me. Father, we pray this morning that you would show us your truth and that your truth would set us free. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. In 2009, Christopher McDougall wrote a book that became pretty transformative across a number of different platforms, definitely in the platform or the arena of running. Christopher McDougall was a writer for Men's Health Magazine. Christopher McDougall had written in other publications such as the Wall Street Journal. But in 2009, he published a book entitled Born to Run. He was answering this age-old question, are, or one of the, the age-old question, are human beings born to run? It was really precipitated by his own personal journey of enjoying running casually, but oftentimes being met with injury. And talking to different medical professionals, he seemed to get a mixed bag of responses. Should I run? Should I not run? Is running good? Is running not good for you? And so he goes into this amazing exploration of this whole history and science of running. There's a number of effects that came out of the book, including a whole revolution in the shoe industry, which has since redacted back to how it was, but that's another discussion. But one of the things that he develops in the book historically is he identifies this tribe in Mexico. The name of the tribe is the Tarumara. And the Tarumara are considered some of the world's greatest and longest running people. He discovers them and he starts to embed himself into their lives and their tribe and gets to know some of them individually and is truly amazed at what these people could do. How far they could run, how fast they could run, what they wore when they ran, which was essentially small leather sandals that were not much different than just running in bare feet. These people were unbelievable with regard to the feats they could reach. For example, they would hunt antelope. You know how they would hunt antelope? They would just start chasing the antelope and chasing the antelope and chasing the antelope for hours upon hours, sometimes going into another day until finally the antelope would kick over in utter exhaustion and this tribe would have their kill. They outran antelope. They would have other festivals that were historic in their time where they would run for over 48 hours at a time. This tribe and these men could churn out ultra marathons that exceeding 100 miles like it was nothing. It's really, really amazing to learn of them 
and to hear their story. Well, one of the things that McDougal, do, McDougal does when he gets to the end of the book, speaking about this particular tribe, he essentially asks the question, why? Like, what really makes them such good runners? Yes, there's necessity. Yes, it's historical. Yes, you know, it's within their genes, etc. But ultimately, at the end of the day, what makes them tick? Why do they run? And why do they run so well? His answer is this. The real secret of the Tarumara that they had never forgotten is what it felt like to love running. They remembered that running was mankind's first fine art, our original act of inspired creation. Distance running was revered because it was indispensable. It is the way we survived and thrived and spread across the planet. You ran to eat, to avoid being eaten. You ran to find a mate and to impress her. And with her, you ran off to start a new life together. You had to love running or you wouldn't live to love anything else. Why did they run? Simple. Love. Love is the reason that they ran in the first place. And love is the reason that they ran so well. You too says it like this. One man comes in the name of love. One man comes and goes. One man comes, he to justify. One man to overthrow. In the name of love. What more in the name of love? In the name of love. What more in the name of love? Or John in his gospel says it like this. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. You see, ultimately what I want us to see this morning, that the Christmas story at the end of the day is a love story. The Christmas story is about God's love for His people. And what Luke chapter 1 with the Virgin Mary teaches us is that God simply loves us. If you don't leave with understanding anything more today, leave with this. God loves His people. His love is exemplified in the fact that God shows up. God keeps His promises. God remembers. We could say it like this. Love is showing up. Love is remembering. Love is keeping your promises. And God does all of these things. And this is the beauty and the joy and the hope and the peace of the Christmas story. Because it's a love story. It's a love story about God's love for His people. It's about God showing up. It's about God remembering. It's about God keeping His promises forever. Even the one that He originated. And in fact, primarily the one that He originated in Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham that Luke speaks of. Here in Luke chapter 1, God loves us. But you know that love is complicated. We oftentimes feel unlovable. And that's where the gospel immediately creates an impasse for us. God remembers, God promises, God shows up for people that are lovely. That's what we tend to think. But this is what's so beautiful about Mary. We're talking a 14-year-old, no-name person with no cultural estate, Nothing that would have drawn anyone to her. 
and in many ways, at least in the eyes of others, was a lackluster, potentially even unlovable person. But you see, we oftentimes think that the fact that we are unlovable, we let that become more primary than God's love. Another thing that we struggle with when we start to think about God's love is it's very easy to be cynical about God's love. Because you see, love requires intimacy. And you know what will kill intimacy in a heartbeat? Cynicism. But you know what also cynicism will do? In the midst of tearing, or closing us off to love, cynicism creates this growing fear, and this growing fear actually creates this growing protection around our hearts and our minds where we start to not be able to receive God's love. And not receiving God's love can look like any number of things. Maybe it's where it's so hard to see God's love and to hear the story of the gospel because we've built such high defeaters to the Christian faith. And there are plenty of barriers and what we we could call defeaters to receiving God's love. But oftentimes, it's very easy at our heart, I believe, to simply be cynical and to be fearful and to close our hearts off to love and to miss the beauty of this story altogether. C.S. Lewis says it like this in his famous book, The Four Loves. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it up carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change, that is, your heart. It will not be broken. Rather, it will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. And what I want us to do today is to see that God, in a righteous and holy way, is vulnerable. Out of all people, God had the prerogative, let's say, to not express love, to lock his love up in a way where he would not be vulnerable. But because God shows his love to us in being vulnerable, it calls us to respond in vulnerability to receive his love. Knowing that God is love, I want us to look a little more detail and a little more detail at this in two ways. I want us to see that love initiates and I want us to see that love responds. If, God, if the overarching message here this morning is God loves us, the way I want to unpack that message is that love initiates and that love responds. The way we see God initiating his love really is in this first section of verses within our scripture, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Once again, what we see here happening is simply God showing up. He shows up in an unlikely place. He shows up with unlikely people. He shows up with unlikely timing. But God shows up. He initiates His love to Mary specifically to Mary, but also representatively to Mary. The good news of the gospel is this, God meets us where we are. And don't we want that to be true? Do you know that it's okay to not be okay? 
In many ways, especially culturally speaking, Mary was not okay. But the good news of the gospel is it's okay to not be okay because God meets us where we are, and that's good news. But it's not only good news that God meets us where we are, but God also does not keep us where we are. So God meets Mary where she is, but then God takes Mary to another place. God meets Mary in this amazing act of humility, in this truly, deeply intimate moment where Mary is asking a genuine question, why me? And then God propels her and meeting her where she is into a place of amazing praise and her response, which we'll look at in just a minute. So what we see is that love initiates by God showing up. We also see this love accepted by Mary. Verse 38, we see that Mary accepted the will of God, knowing that this acceptance of God's love would cost her something. And that's the hard reality with love. That's what C.S. Lewis is getting at, and that's what, if we were to reflect on our own struggles and tension and resistance to love, is this. Love always costs something. Love costs God something, His very own Son. Love costs Mary something. It causes her suffering. And then Joseph, gosh, what about Joseph? Seemingly innocent bystander who has to live in great tension and cultural shame. One commentator says this about Mary's acceptance of God's love. Mary's response reveals her character. Let it be as you have said, Mary says. This was no simple matter. She is being asked to bear a child as a virgin without being married. We'll talk more about this in a minute, but just... She's being asked as a young teenage girl to bear a child that this angel tells her is none other than the Messiah. And, by the way, she's a virgin. In standing up for God and His power, she will probably become the object of much doubt and ridicule. But Mary knows that she is God's servant. So she will allow God to work through her as He wills. He can place her in whatever difficult circumstances he desires, for she knows that God is with her. Now, before we move on to love responding, let's consider just for a moment as a quick, we'll call it an apologetic excursus on this whole idea of the virgin birth. Now, I can't solve this mystery for us today, because I don't have enough time, but even if I did have enough time, the very nature of a mystery is that it is logically unsolvable. However, that doesn't mean that there aren't things for us to consider, and the first thing that I want us to consider is this. This is not easy to believe. Even if you're a Christian, and you gloss over, yeah, 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 this teenager, Mary, I've heard this story. You know, she never had sex with the man, but she's going to give birth to the child. You know, the Holy Spirit is the one that's going to conceive her. You know, the virgin birth. If that's not, to some degree, implausible for you, then you're really not thinking about it. And for those of you who would put yourself, let's say, outside the bounds of Christianity that are here today, you're probably a little more honest about it, and you're just like, yep, no. Not in on that. Because you see, to get in on this, we have to get in on 
the reality and the presence of the supernatural. And this is something that makes us understandably uncomfortable. But what we have here in the gospel is a supernatural act that the Bible refers to as a miracle. Just yesterday in the New York Times, a writer that I like a lot, Nicholas Kristof, who writes on culture and religion, was interviewing an evangelical scholar named William Lane Craig. He's very solid in a number of things. William Lane Craig, pretty much like anybody that any of us could find, is not flawless in all things with regard to his view of Scripture and theology, etc. However, he believes the Bible. He believes in Jesus. He believes the gospel. He would be what's considered, actually, at this day and time, maybe culturally one of the worst things to be considered, particularly if you're a scholar, an evangelical. And Nicholas Kristof, who's the writer for the New York Times, is interviewing William Lane Craig, asking him about the virgin birth. Nicholas Kristof says, I must confess that for all my admiration for Jesus, I am skeptical about some of the narrative we have inherited. Are you actually confident, Dr. Craig, that Jesus was born to a virgin? His response, when I was a non-Christian, I used to struggle with this too. Just stop there for a minute. Quick, like, lesson for all of us. If you're a Christian and you're talking with a non-Christian, it's very important to realize there's a lot about your faith that's really hard to accept. Let's keep going. But then it occurred to me that for a God who could create the entire universe, making a woman pregnant wasn't that big of a deal. Given the existence of a creator and a designer of the universe for which we have good evidence, Dr. Craig says, an occasional miracle is child's play. Historically speaking, the story of Jesus' virginal conception is independently attested by Matthew and Luke and is utterly unlike anything in pagan mythology or Judaism. So what's the problem? I get the impression, Nick, that you think science is somehow incompatible with belief in miracles. If so, you need to give an argument for that conclusion. If you think science is incompatible with miracles, Dr. Craig challenges Nicholas Kristof by saying, you need to give an argument for that conclusion. David Hume, who was a famous philosopher, David Hume's famous argument against miracles is today recognized in the words of a recent philosopher as an abject failure. No one has been able to do any better. Now, we could get lost in the weeds here. I simply want to recognize the virgin birth is a defeater for many to Christianity because the supernatural is a defeater for many to Christianity. And that's okay. I just want to encourage you to continue to explore and to ask and to dig and to ask questions like, Is the reality and presence of miracles truly incompatible with science? And if so, take that out further and prove that that's true. And for those of you who are Christians, once again, be sympathetic. Even in your own heart, in your own faith, don't gloss over the reality of this miracle and the supernatural wonder that has taken place in this particular story. Back to our regularly scheduled programming. God loves us. 
God initiates his love. And then what we see in Mary's song is she responds with love. You see, God doesn't initiate his love simply for it to be unrequited. The whole purpose of God showing us his love is that then we would respond in love. And that order is of utmost importance, by the way. I've said this in one way or another many different times today, but listen once again. The gospel is God loves us. And because God loves us, we love him. That was the New Testament reading. Did you catch it in 1 John? We love, why? Because we have first been loved by God. But we are called to love, and Mary really embodies this love in this beautiful hymn. This is a song, even as Laura told the children, it really is true. This was the first Christmas carol. She sung it. Many scholars believe that she had a four-day journey. And over four days, most likely they conclude that here she was, walking along this road, singing This song, this song of love to the God that loves her. This song of the gospel to the good news that had come to her. She begins by calling the Lord magnificent, or she magnifies the Lord. Oftentimes this passage, you might know, is referred to as the magnificent, which is the word magnify in the Latin translation of the New Testament. And that's what Mary does. She magnifies the Lord in this song. Martin Luther said Mary's hymn, this song, is really about three things. It's about praise and comfort and fear. Mary is singing to the Lord out of love, out of response to God's love. She is singing song, a song of praise, singing a song of comfort, and also, interestingly, singing a song of fear. She praises God in this text, in this song, for His power, for His holiness, for His mercy. And what an appropriate response. That which we think about God, that which we say about God, has been said as the most important thing about us. Of course, C.S. Lewis said in response to that, while that is important, it's actually more important what God thinks about us. But nevertheless, It is important how we praise God. We praise Him as being one who is powerful, who is holy, and who is merciful. And Mary praises God in that way. Mary also sings in this great hymn about comfort. Specifically comfort for those who are of low estate. Read the Gospels over and over. Read the Scriptures. And one of the things you're going to see repeatedly is this. Grace... God's unmerited favor for those who actually deserve His wrath in Christ. Grace runs downhill to the down and out, always. For Christ came to seek and to save the lost. He did not come for those who are well, but He came for the sick. He did not come for the righteous, but He came for the unrighteous. And what Mary knows is that I am of low estate, and I am in need of comfort and grace. And what God says is, well, good news, grace runs downhill to those who are down and out. And that's why Isaiah can say, comfort, comfort all my people. And Mary sings a song of love about the comfort that she has. But then Mary also closes her song, and I don't know if you caught this or not, with some words of fear. But at this point, I don't think these words of fear are actually her own words of fear. While surely she was and even is to some degree still fearful, 
she actually gives words in her song a fearful warning. Fearful warning to whom? Fearful warning to those who are of high estate. Fearful warning of those who don't recognize themselves, spiritually speaking, as downhill, down and out, in need of grace. She speaks words of warning and fear to those, simply stated, who are prideful. Now, the text mentions rich, but if we read that in the context of all of Scripture, Scripture is very clear there is no sin in being rich. There is no problem, ultimately, actually with money. The problem is this. If our highest state, as it, result, as it manifests itself culturally speaking, in our material possessions or in our bank accounts, if we see ourselves as highest state in that way, and that highest state blinds us from the lowest state that we inherited spiritually, be fearful. Mary gives words of warning for that. So she sings this amazing song of love as she praises God, as she comforts others, and that she also speaks words of fear this morning. This whole song, in many ways, is an embrace and a celebration not only of God's love, but of humility. If you were to ask someone, and this would be an unfair question, what is the primary characteristic of a Christian? What's the main thing of a person that knows Christ, that follows God? Would it be their righteousness or their holiness? You and I hope not. Um, would it be that they have the right friends, that they um, look a certain way, that they have the right ethnicity or nationality or live in one of the most blessed places in the world, whatever place that might be in your opinion? Having a particular political position, maybe that's what it really means to be characterized as a Christian. The way I see it as I read the Scriptures over and over, and I could give evidence like this, for example, Psalm 51, but that's not the only place. If we had to identify one characteristic that identifies a Christian above all else, my submission would be humility. And Mary's song is a song of love, and it's a song of praise, and it's a song of humility. But interestingly enough, it's a song of responsive humility. Because God shows his love so powerfully to Mary and to us, guess what? In his own humility. Love is humility. God shows it and Mary responds. There's a great hymn that we'll sing during communion. And as we start to close, I want to lead us into that, not lead us in that hymn, but lead us into reflecting upon the hymn, O Holy Night. And particularly the call in that hymn to fall on our knees. That's an act of love. That's an act of humility. There's a fantastic series in The Atlantic, the magazine, that came out a few years ago called The Twelve Songs of Christmas. And 12 different writers reflected on 12 different songs. And Emma Green reflects on O Holy Night. And I want you to hear what she says as we move towards that time in our worship. Often, the humility that this song embodies is lost, she says. 
I mentally associate Oh Holy Night with sopranos like Celine Dion and Whitney Houston, who dramatically trill, to the, trill the song to unbelievable heights, a full orchestra behind them. It has also been Josh Grobenized, lyrically, transformed into a full-blown Hallmark movie climax. These renditions are impressive, and they have been popular, but these singers are not on their knees. They make the song less by performing it as more than what it is. A divine gut punch. A breathless celebration of a world fundamentally changed. The translator of the song from French to English said this, This song encapsulates the truest feeling, such as true art, true music, breathes and makes an appeal to. It's more than intellectual temper. Heart quickens the brain. Then thought reacts on feeling, and it carries it up to a sense of perfect order, to a holy love and yearning after unity. Fall on your knees. A yearning for unity. It's not quite a praise of brokenness, this song, but at the very least, it seems like a subtle nod to the power of music to make us feel humble. That's what Mary's song did. And then in conclusion, Emma Green says this, and she gives a recommendation that I think you'll want to listen to. More than 150 years later, at least one artist has captured this feeling. There are many reasons to adore Sufjan Stevens' Christmas album, but his version of O Holy Night is among the foremost. Stevens is an atypical Christian music maker. He often sings about God, even when it isn't Christmas, but he never seems preachy. He seems fragile. He seems like he needs Jesus' love. That's the kind of song Mary sung. She sung a song that was humble because she's fragile, because she needs Jesus' love. So do you, and so do I, and we can sing about it here in a moment. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you that you meet us where we are. You meet us in the midst of our belief and our doubt. You meet us in the midst of joy and sorrow. You meet us in the midst of having clarity And you meet us in the midst of having a ton of confusion, even confusion about some of the core fundamentals of the Christian faith, like the virgin birth. We pray that you would lovingly, humbly steward us through those questions and bring us to yourself. Help us to receive your love more fully today, and may we respond in love to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.